Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Longest-running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine, and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. everybody and welcome along to another episode of Midweek Motorsport. It is just after uh, 8 o'clock uh, in the evening here and uh, it's very dark again this week. Series 14, episode 46. Uh, just to, We'll give you some football results in a minute uh, just to prove that we are uh, live. Up in London uh, is our uh, executive producer Tim Gray. Good evening Tim. Good evening John. Uh, it's 1-0, 0-0, 1-0. Uh, 1-0 uh, and uh, Liverpool and Everton haven't kicked off yet so uh, there you go Is it, that's almost a full programme of um, oh, sounds six like matches tonight in the Premiership yeah uh, two last night two tomorrow yes almost sounded like the tape had a crinkle in it there on our opening Did, uh, didn't on, it on a, on a packed programme tonight Tim we have what uh, we have all the usual features. Right. Uh, we will be looking back at uh, the last seven days of motorsport action. We have uh, a selection of special guests, uh, including a big interview with Cyril Tesh Valen. Uh, uh, man at the head of the Asian Le Mans series, yes, yes just after nine o'clock. just got underway. Mm-hmm. I mean, not literally just got underway, it was ten days ago, but... Uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Howe is going to be joining us. Yes, that's in the. Is that in the second hour that's tonight as well? Uh, also in the second hour of the show tonight. Right. She will be talking about the NHRA season. Oh, great! Which is good because we haven't heard anything from Jamie for about seven months. Uh, yes. Good point. Uh, I know she'll have been on the. Uh, she'll have been on the on IMSA radio since then. Not on this show, maybe. Was she was she at Watkins Glen? Mm, good question. I don't think I've heard her since then, right. but I haven't listened to all of them. Right. Uh, we also have uh, who's our other guest, John? I've forgotten. Uh, tonight we have Nigel Scott Dobby, the man who knows more about Corvettes than it's uh, than anybody else, really, to be honest. Uh, and he'll be talking about his new book, which was on the uh, on the Christmas presents list last week. He popped in earlier on today. That one is a pre-record. Uh, that's also uh, available as a separate podcast, also the uh, Christmas presents list. Yes, if you it want is. To yeah, lovely. Download and listen to that again. I can't uh, find a Twitter handle for Cyril Tashville. Oddly. And I'm sure uh, he's got one. Agent one. I've got that. Um... Also, we're going to be kicking off the new, not new season, because it's the end of the season. We're going to be kicking off This Year's This. 
It's nominations day. Oh yeah. In the uh, man of the for the man of the year show, which is two weeks tonight. Uh, so tonight we're going to be asking uh, you, John. We're also going to be asking Shay Adam and Nick Damon and Ooh. Johnny Palmer uh, for their nominees in the six categories. Uh, next week we'll open the voting, uh, but from tonight we're also going to be asking our listeners to uh, give their selections for nominees for the Listeners' Award and then... Uh, between now and next Tuesday, we want you to nominate those over on Twitter, and then uh, we'll start voting for that uh, on Wednesday as well with the other six categories. That's all uh, Man of the Year show stuff later on. Sure, Thea. Yes. <laughs> uh, and are we going to spread those through the show? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, of. There. Yeah, I'm just p- punching that in. And shall we do a quick bit of tweetage then before we get underway? Indeed. Uh, and let's go through some big stories today that we'll get through at the moment. Uh, Chris Matthias says, apologies to be missing out in the last half hour or so due to work. Interested in hearing about the news about Persia wanting to start a revolution. Uh, not start a revolution, but a rebellion. Very good. See what you did there. Uh, Kevin Payne. Catching up on the podcast, he's swapping us for uh, for midweek football this week. Don't say what doesn't say which game he's at. Matthew Heinemann, apologies for absence. Going to have to miss the first hour tonight. Checking in with one our group meeting. Hope to catch the second hour live on the drive home. First on the podcast. Okay. Marcus Miller uh, says uh, I'm uh, saving the podcast. I've got uh, apologies for absence tonight. I've done nine flights in 18 days across many time zones. I could be asleep any second. DB. Uh, Robert Wilshire is, and I feel your pain, Marcus. Um, I'm doing qualifying, said Robert Wilshire, for the real tour in Nurburgring 24 hours in an RA GTD with Impulse Racing. We've got some uh, Nurburgring news. Uh, later on, Kevin Poulton listening live tonight. So is Miss Jack. Hello, Jackie. How are you? Uh, Matt Hunter uh, getting uh, ready uh, for that uh, big event uh, this weekend. And uh, what else have we got? Sorry, I can't, I can't scroll down quick. Enough. Carol is listening. Uh, and Kevin as well. Kevin, Kevin, Carol and Kevin Brink in Monterey. Jack Gabriel getting the podcast. He's been busy painting again. It was a 911 930 turbo. Is anyone with a classic Porsche that needs paint? Hint, hint. Actually, the 968 could do with a little bit of work on the right rear wing. I Maybe have a chat with you about that. Chris Sugu, no AFAs tonight. Looking forward to the show. Well, popping out the shops and then faffing around. Oh, P-H-A-F-F-ing around. Organising his coloured pencils. Is that like Martin faffing around? Yes, possibly. Exactly like that. Uh, formerly of uh, Janetta, wasn't he? High noon uh, on the west. other things, yes. Yeah. He came up in conversation yesterday, funnily enough. I like Martin. He was a lovely lad. High noon on the west coast. Currently lunch meeting. Deadlines followed by in and out. Ooh... Very envious, uh, very uh, envious. Ah, right, okay. So I now have, I knew that Cyril had a uh, Twitter handle. Uh, so that's Adspect Entertainment, if you'd like to get in touch with us. Hello, David Alcock, another busy show. Looking forward to his midweek sanity reset. Play the jingle and let's get into the top story.
All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Where would you like to start tonight? Uh, we're going to start with Formula One tonight. Right. Uh, but not the race. Right. We're going to start with testing. It's, it's testing, been, testing. Yeah, the final tests of the year. Because uh, everyone decided, let's not uh, leave Abu Dhabi. Let's hang around uh, and uh, do some more work on track. Right. And guess who's and where is Nick Dearman? He's in Abu Dhabi. Yes. Yeah. Having a party. An Abu Dhabi do. Yeah. Upgraded to a suite, apparently. He still does. Oh. Uh, and obviously, there's uh, two days of Formula 2 testing coming up as well. So, uh, really? more to keep him uh, occupied. Uh, but it's after midnight there now, so uh, he's not talking to us. Mm, okay. Uh, who's fastest today, John? Uh, Valtteri Bottas. No, it was George Russell. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, yes, sorry, that's the wrong question. Did nobody else go... Oh, no, hang on. Was he in the Williams? He was not in the Williams, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was going to say, did nobody go out? <laughs> what was he doing? Oh, he's in the Mercedes. He's in the Mercedes. Yes, of course. Hence no uh, Valtteri Bottas. Mm. Uh, and he right, did a 137.204. That's 137.204. Uh, and he did 145 laps in total. Wow. Second fastest uh, was uh, a man who crashed earlier in the day. Uh, Was that a Williams driver by any chance? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. Um, Was not Robert Kubica either. No, well, he's done now, isn't he? So he's all finished. Um, uh, Let me give you a clue. Right. yeah, perfect. Yeah. It is I, Leclerc. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we haven't had that for such a long time. Charles Leclerc then. Charles Leclerc. Charles Leclerc was uh, second fastest, uh, just under two tenths of a second behind George Russell. Third was Lance Stroll in the Racing Point. Mm-hmm. Fourth, Pierre Gasly in the Toro Rosso. Mm-hmm. Fifth was Carlos Sainz Jr. in the McLaren. Sixth was Esteban Con. In the Renault, remember that Ocon has been a Mercedes uh, driver up until now. Right. Uh, Alexander Albon was seventh in the Red Bull. Uh, Haas were eighth with Pietro Fittipaldi. Alfa Romeo ninth uh, with Antonio Giovinazzi uh, today. Uh, And the new Williams driver uh, was tenth. (laughs) The new Williams driver, is that what we're calling him? Once again, Queen Latifah is back. Yeah, very good. Uh, Nicholas Latifi uh, was 10th fastest, 107 laps completed, uh, and the fastest one was 2.984 seconds slower than George Russell. Oh, okay. And there was an 11th car out there. Was there? And that was the second Williams Mercedes with uh, Williams' new test driver in it. And who's Williams' new test driver then? That would be Roy Nissany. Really? And how far off the pace do you think he was? If he were... Off whose pace? How far off Nicholas Satifi's pace do you think he was? If he was anything less than a couple of seconds, I'd be impressed. 3.7. Yeah. Okay, I think that's all right. And... Uh, but how far was that? How well, 7. far? 7.7 behind Russell. Yes, exactly. That's... That, 
That is team. When you fastest Williams. lap around Dabby Dabby is a 1.44, you're yeah. in trouble. Seven seconds off a 1.44 lap. Oof. No, his lap was a 1.44, but that was right. seven seconds off the pace. Wow. What are we talking? Uh, who needs help, according to Mark Webber? Um, who needs help, according to Mark Webber? Um, England Test Cricket Team? Uh, no. Uh, the... Uh, Fernando Alonso? Sebastian nope. Vettel. Sebastian Seb- Vettel, yes. <laughs> of course. Why didn't I think of that first? When Mark's got anything to say like that, it's always Sebastian. <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. I think you need to seek some advice from people. This is uncharted waters for him because, well, it's not because he has been beaten by his teammate before. Yeah. When he uh, was alongside Daniel Ricciardo. Uh because he's coming towards the end of his career, he needs to seek all the different professional advice that he can from people who might also have been on this journey. That way he can understand how to unlock that new phase of passion and energy, to that drive to get going. Mm. He's got three kids now, 22 races next year. I don't have kids, said Mark Webber, but that would be a real challenge for me. And some of the other guys don't have that. He's just messing with his head, isn't he? It's been his worst season at Ferrari, and he's got a big, big fight on his hands to come back next year. Oh, dear. He's not coming back next year. I don't think he is coming back next year. I said in our review of last year's programme, and we will have a last year's Formula One, um, that I didn't think he would come back if Leclerc um, did better than him. And I think, I'm not sure he will come back. And depending on who's available for a season before Lewis goes there when he's contracts up at Mercedes? I don't know. Maybe. Well, hints from Lewis that he uh, is looking elsewhere for his new contract. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we think he's going to go anywhere else? When's his contract up? Uh, End of next season. End of next season, yes. No, the following season, I think. Mm. End of 2022. Sorry, end of 2021 for 2022. Yeah, okay, so that is two seasons more. It's a long way away, and he will only go to somewhere where he thinks he's got another chance of another championship. I can't see him deciding that he wants to go to Alfa Romeo um, or Alfa Centauri. Alfa Tori. Yeah, Alfa Centauri is what we're going to be calling them all next year. And uh, every racing driver, every racing driver wants thinks they can go and, and make Ferrari all right again. Make Ferrari great again. And they... But I think two years is too long because if Vettel does pack in next year, or even if he goes to the end of his contract, which is at the end of next year, then pff, who knows where they'll be by the time Lewis is available. Assuming that he runs his full contract, of course, because let's be honest, a contract is only a starting point for the conversation, isn't it? Yes. Toto's been saying that he thinks it's only, was it 50 to 75% sure that he'll hold on to him? Wasn't that what he, he was quoted as saying? Possibly. Mm. I think it's much higher than that. He's out, he's out, when he's out, I mean, he's, he's hot property, he's still going to be hot property by the end of the season when he's finished his contract, presuming that he wants to carry on, and I think he does. Talked about Lewis here. Um, then... 
it'll depend what he feels the package is going to be like. And by that, I mean the car, not necessarily the money. I don't think the money is that important, but he'll want to be remunerated in a manner that he thinks befits his standing as a, uh, by then, 127-time world champion, or whatever it will be. Who thinks that Formula One's rules are too complicated? Everybody. Ross Braun. Close. Um, oh, somebody close to Ross Braun. Um, Bernie Eccleston. Uh, no, you're moving further, f- away, further away. Um, somebody from Liberty. Chase Carey. Yeah, Chase Carey. Couldn't remember his name. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he says uh, fans can't follow it. There's a hundred page. We have a. We've got a one hundred page regulation book. We've got to get the business to a place where it's easier to follow and has fewer complexities that fans out there can't really follow. It'll always be a complicated sport. It's a marriage of sporting competition and technology. But we need to make it something that's more in line with what the fans want to see and what energizes them. Can I, can I make a couple of observations there? Mm-hmm. The fans don't have the hundred pages of technical regulations out. They're just looking at cars going round the track. Yes. And that's not complicated. What what's what is complicated is the sort of things that happen at the weekend when people don't really know what's going to happen in the light of Ferrari uh, declaring one mass of fuel and uh, and then putting a different mass of fuel into the car. Not as mass, not volume. That's because in for FIA Formula One, they do like to get it absolutely right, not volume, which is not an exact measurement. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I I don't think it's that difficult to follow. One car drives around, passes another car, and you're following it, aren't you? Who finished third in the Brazilian Grand Prix? Uh, who cares? Um, third... Carlos signs eventually. Who was the third car across the line? Um, uh, somebody else. Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton. There you go. How long after the race finished did Carlos signs get third place? Forty-five minutes. Uh, no, it was nearly three hours. Oh really? Okay. Uh, it was pretty obvious that he was going to get it, though, wasn't it? It was. Yes. The Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Yeah. Who finished third? Uh, finished third was uh, Leclerc. What was the narrative the entire race? He's going to get thrown out of the race. Who is now third in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix? Charles Leclerc. Because he didn't get thrown out? No. Because he didn't break the rules? No. But but blame, you can only blame the information that was being given out because the people who need to read the 100 pages didn't. Yes. I, I, the people doing the talking. Team managers, drivers to a certain extent for some of the regulations, but commentators need to know the rules. Um, now, that said, it would have been helpful if the FIA had given some direction, having said that there'd been a directive that had been broken as to what the potential was rather than just let everybody run off and speculate and say, oh, he could be disqualified. Well, yeah, he could be disqualified. He could be thrown out of the World Championship, but it wasn't going to happen. Don't know. Anyway, I'm just... Didn't spoil my enjoyment of the race. No. Uh, very exciting race, John. Uh, not bad. Not the worst Abu Dhabi race 
I've seen. Interesting to see what happened when DRS wasn't being used, I thought. Yes. Very interesting. Overtaking is still possible, but you have to be more clever about when you do it. Yeah, and uh, you know, big long straights, Aero still providing you with uh, an advantage if you're sitting in the hole in the air from the car in front. You know, that, do you remember that slipstreaming thing that people used to do? It's still, I still find it remarkable that you can have such good races in F2, Formula 2, F2? Yeah, you can call it F2. F2, um, which both the races at the weekend was stunning. Pirelli providing a tyre that you had to have on for six laps at the start of the feature race that fell apart at three laps. And then, so do you do that first or do you put it on at the end when the car's lighter? Cars that could follow each other really closely. And I thought it it was great entertainment. So, you know, horses for courses. Everybody's saying, you've got to change the track, you've got to change the track. It's not that easy to change tracks. Why don't you just make the cars differently? Seems a bit easier to me. Uh... Not the worst Grand Prix I've seen. And I I didn't fall asleep, watched it all. And, yeah, interesting. Uh, well, bit we of strategy, like next. a bit of strategy. Oh, we I talked think. about Roy Nissany earlier. Yes, you did. Uh, what uh, does he plan to do next year alongside uh, his uh, test role at Williams? Uh, so he'll be standing in the back with a T-shirt and a pair of heads, headphones on. Uh, is he going to have a, uh, a street food stall out the back of the paddock? Uh, he's not. Oh, he hasn't announced it yet. Okay. Uh, his plan is that he's going to do Formula 2. Ah, well, so he'd be there anyway. Well, that's yes. good for most of them. See, now he's found a team that's going to fly him to all the races. He might as well do some racing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Makes uh, sense. Who else was confirmed in Formula 2 today? Don't know. Sorry. Uh, this is the Dams team has announced its two drivers for next year. will be... Uh, Sean Gilleal. Oh, I did say that. Who's been around for a very long time. Yeah. And still sponsored by that fried chicken. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Dan Tictum. Uh, who rich. also seems to have been around for a long time and is no longer sponsored by uh, that uh, energy drink company. No, indeed. Uh, is it D- Dan Tictum, who was a bit controversial last year. That Dan yes. Tictum. So he's back in from the cold, where nobody thought nobody thought he'd ever get a drive again, except he's come with money, so guess what? He's got a drive again. Yes. I mean, he has won the Macau Grand Prix twice. Yeah. Um, but he was terrible in Super Formula. Uh, is he still a Red Bull Junior driver? No. Right. Okay. Moving on. Uh, let's move on to some sports cars. I'll do some tweets first. Okay. Uh Hello to Sarah Rigby, who's tuned in listening at home. About to start the ironing. Probably has started the ironing now. That was 15 minutes ago and that dropped in. Neil Gardner says, I'm sorry, my daughter and I have been to the church to try our hand bell ringing. Now I'm getting her things ready for school. What, she's going to school at 10 o'clock at night? Campanology. A host of other jobs. Campanology, yes, very good. Uh, Alexander Orkin, evening chaps and chapesses, no AFAs, prepping for tomorrow's meeting. A plethora of news this week. Yes, he's right. Uh, And... Don't forget, we'll have Cyril Tashvalen uh, uh, after the uh, 9 o'clock break. Uh, right turn lover, Hamilton's contract ends next year. 
according to Google. Ooh, right. Well, that would be the same time as Vettel's ends at Ferrari if he goes that far. Okay. Uh, Jack uh, Gabriel, uh, who is painting, he's in Bracknell. Oh, hello. It's just down the M40 for me. Only th- Quite thing- a long way down the M40. Yeah, it's not that far. Uh, the only thing complicated about following the F1 races are the tyre rules, says right turn lover. Well, I don't think so. I don't think even the tyre rules are that complicated. Tyres are easy. Yeah, you just have to use two of the three compounds. And see, when are you allowed to cross lines? How many wheels are you allowed to have across oh, the line? Forget all that How much of a wheel is allowed to cross the line? Is the line in or out? Is it like tennis or is it like football? Mm. Is it the whole of the ball over the whole of the line? Mm. Mm. That was, uh, who was it? Jimmy Hill always used to say that on in, back in the early days of Match of the Day. Bioben, Dr. Bioben, late apologies for uh, EFAC, apologies for absence of culture tonight. <laughs> yes, we did like that culture picture. Work keeping me busy, but see you, stroke hear you in the podcast at Specutainment. Did you say sports cars? I did. Uh, shall we start with the big news then? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, it's big for someone. Uh, and that someone is 31-year-old Colin Braun. Yes, because he's got himself a drive, at least for Daytona. Yes, uh, alongside Ben Hanley and Henrik Hedman. This is in the Elton Julian fielded Dragon Speed LMP2. Yes, it's Norica Gibson. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because um, Daytona... The Rolex uh, 24 Daytona has been taken out of the LMP2 season-long championship. Uh, so you can choose, if you're doing the whole championship, to take out that that event uh, and not have it affect your championship. Although, bizarrely, it's still... Not bizarrely. Reasonably, it's still in the endurance part of the championship, the Michelin Endurance Cup. But it does give the opportunity for a different business proposition mm. for some of the full-season teams. Uh, and it, Dragon Speed are looking for a fourth driver as well. Yeah, you can have up to five um, at, at Sebring, at uh, Daytona rather, and uh, four at Sebring. Um, again, that's, that'll be business orientated. There's still the draw of the watch, you see. There's still the draw of the watch. What we don't know is if Elton's going to commit the Dragon Speed car to the rest of the season yet. Well, he can't. Why? Because he's, he's not a busy. silver. He hasn't got a silver. He's not silver, and they can only take a silver. Yeah, but it doesn't stop them committing that car to the rest of the season with other drivers, does it? Oh, sorry, yes. I'm I'm pretty sure that the car is doing the full season. All right, okay, good. Excellent. Um, but with Hedman and Hanley. Right, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, but Colin Bourne can't do the rest of it because he's the wrong colour of metal. Indeed, and we've got some. Re- we've got a result for you as well, haven't we? Yes, we do in the European Le Mans series. Excellent. When was that race? Uh, oh, I'm going to have to look that up End now. End of October. Well, was it as that? Isn't that the one we're talking about? It is the one we're talking about. Yes, the uh, title decider. Yes, at Portimao. That was on the 27th of, uh, of October. Of October. Yes. Yes. I did that from memory. It helps that my birthday was the day after. Yes, you see. So, we, so we've got a result from that, and and that means we've got a title winner as well. Uh, yes, Euro International. Uh, I can confirm they've won the title, uh, as everyone thought they might do. This was all down to a 
Was it a drive time violation, that one? Yes. Right, thought it was. Okay, good. Um, so actually, the result hasn't changed because the appeal by, was it into you, Paul, mm-hmm. uh, has been denied. Right, okay. All seems uh, reasonable. Uh, are we going to have to learn some new letters for some of our endurance racing team? Oh, I'm not sure I know this one. Oh, I bet you do. It's a bit of a it's it's a, it's a bit sort of like a Scrabble question. Um, instead of VLN. Oh yes. We might be having. Now VLN is the organisation that uh, yes. runs a series also called VLN. Correct. Uh, on the Nurburgring Nordschleife. What uh, a lot of people don't understand about the VLN is each of the individual rounds that make up the VLM Championship are run by a different... Club. Uh, motor club, effectively. I think there is... I think there are two rounds that are run by the same motor club. But of the nine rounds, there are definitely, I think, at least eight different organising clubs. And the Championship itself... So all of those individual events are, are organised and staged by different um, motor clubs. The Championship itself is looked after by a company called VLN uh, VV GmbH and Co Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Co (laughs) excellent so VLN obviously is Rennstelter Gemeinschaft Langstreckenpokal Nürburgring yes and they're now rebranding the series as Nürburgring Langstrecken Serie so they've lost the Rennstelter Gemeinschaft part of it so it's actually which 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 and they've also lost the Pokal. no more cup yes no more cup so the pictures that i saw today showed the caracciola carousel with nürburgring endurance series written in english on it which would be nes yes. but it's actually going to be nls yes langstrecker series yes, yes. except distance. it's not ah. because langstrecker series is one word in German. Right. So it's just NL, uh, right. which is ne- uh, Netherlands also. <laughs> okay. And as for what Veranstalter Gemeinschaft translates to in English, well, it doesn't really. Really not? No, it, it's just a collection of other words put together. I love German compound nouns. Uh, it's not even a compound noun, it's a compound adjective. Well, true, yes, absolutely. Anyway, it's all changing for next year. Well, yes. Uh, um, and this is for marketing reasons. Is it? Yes. Right. Well, Johannes Quagliger has put a fantastic explainer uh, on the Radio Show Limited Listeners Connective on uh, on Facebook. I'll, I'll give you the headline news. Uh, the new name... Just sort of underlining what Tim's been saying. A new name, but the organisation behind it still known by its VLN moniker. The idea for 2020 is to work on improving the customer experience, uh, optimising the administrative court's workflow at the events. The organisation of individual rounds will remain with the respective clubs. VLN is also looking at installing permanent race secretary for those administrative matters. Now, there's a few bits and pieces of changes about driver briefings. The biggest one we're going to have to take note of is the classes that didn't have a minimum pit stop time uh, up until now will have to have a minimum pit stop time. But the time spent in the pits is not per stop, 
it's per race. So in one way, if you have a very quick pit stop, it's no longer rewarded. Um, the built-in differences between cars uh, are evened out in terms of you know how much fuel you use. But there is a new element of strategy tactics, i.e. how do you use up all that pit stop time? It's given as well, from the team's point of view, says Johannes, the opportunity for them to attract possibly a third driver in classes where normally an additional driver would have been a disadvantage to their race strategy. That time is absorbed by the required minimum time in the pits. More drivers, more cost sharing between drivers, possibly more entries in some of the smaller classes that are undersubscribed. It will also put an end to, or at least mitigate, the age-old problem that they've had of the inequality between the flow and the fuel pumps on pit lane. Um, the difference, perhaps as much as up to three seconds per pit stop. And, and that is why, of course, the SP9, SP10, SPX and SP Pro have always had that sliding pit stop time to try and even out that fuel fill in those what are normally looked at as pro uh, classes. They don't change, uh, by the way. Um, they're back with the Opel uh, Performance Centre Cup, the OPC Cup for the Opel Astras, running to its old technical rulebook, power to rate ratio allowing permit B drivers to compete. TCRs are going to be divided up into Max and Pro, uh, sorry, Am and Pro. Uh, in the Am, one silver driver per car, otherwise only brands and unclassified bronze. SP10 and GT4 exclusively for silver and bronze drivers now. So that's a change. Great, I might get a drive here. Uh, I've got to go and do my permit. SP9 Am allowing one silver driver per car, enabling younger drivers to gain Nordsch Life at GT3 experience. And there'll be a in-cockpit hazard warning system called the Smart Track Safety Display, S-T-S-D. Thoroughly uh, indebted to Johannes uh, for all of that information. It will change how we uh, have to look. Uh, how we have to look. And by the way, well, right, the fact that over. the minimum pit stops are aggregated, so you can still do one fast one and slow one, means that's actually... only that's only that's only for the classes that don't currently have a minimum pit stop yes. time. Yeah. But aggregating the time across the race and not doing it per pit stop adds a whole new level of strategy because yes, exactly. you can make your pit stop the length of time you need to get a gap in the traffic. Yes. Yeah, you could come in. Well, and that means you could also come in and burn some time um, when you know that you've got the ability to do it. You don't even have to necessarily work on the car or change the driver. I do think it's interesting that they think that the teams think it'll allow them to add an, an extra driver into the four-hour races because the likelihood is they will have to make an extra stop to burn that time. Of course, you might just have drivers saying, "Now, nah, just let." We'll stand still for three minutes in the pits or, you know, four and a half minutes or whatever it is and still only do it with a couple of drivers. Um, right Turn Lover says, Nürburgring Langstrecken Siri has a hyphen in it. So it is NLS. Well, so it's not one so. word. Yeah, well, it's a hyphenated word. Yes. Uh, calendar news. Uh, calendar news? Yes. Right. This is for the you do like a bit of calendar news, I don't do, you? I do, yes. Yeah. We need to get a calendar news jingle. <laughs> uh, 
FIA World Endurance Championship won't be going to Interlagos. This is all down to the fact that the voice of the FIA World Endurance Championship broad, live broadcast, Johnny, Johnny Palmer, Palmer, he was keen to get a Brazilian, apparently. Uh, well, I have heard trip. that. He, um, he, was, uh, he was unavailable for the Brazilian uh, event because he'll be down under and... Um, Stop sniggering at the back there. Uh, and at the uh, Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hours, uh, the uh, Brazilian promoter, uh, in all seriousness, as I think we'd reported in the past, hadn't really been up to uh, fulfilling their requirements, shall we say. And therefore, in order to ensure the continuity of the calendar, not only have they cancelled that, but they've added in uh, quarter about going back to the Circuit yes. of the Americas but on the 23rd which I'm pretty certain Johnny is available for 23rd well yeah if he doesn't want a holiday uh, no no either, but he's fi- he's finished on the 6th or the 7th Gerard Never yeah uh, says uh, it's very unfortunate to find ourselves in this position the WC very much regrets this situation and feels very sad for the city of Sao Paulo and the many thousands of Brazilians our main concern was our competitors and partners, and we've worked very hard to find a solution which offered the least disruption possible. Very, very careful, Gerard. And I noticed, um, and particular, to point out that the Brazilian national and local authorities and the track itself were not in any way to blame uh, for this. It was solely down to the inability of the promoter to deliver on their promises. Uh, fair play to everybody at... FIA, WEC, the Endurance Management, LMEM, of which Gerard Navoy is the top top man, for being able to find a uh, replacement venue. Um, teams seeing that perhaps it will save them some money, uh, perhaps as much as 50% on the travel costs uh, in terms of getting the cars there uh, from uh, Bahrain, which is where they will be in a couple of weeks' time rather than having to go down to Brazil. And there's a knock-on with savings because the race after that is, of course, in America at Sebring. So they'll be going straight to Sebring uh, after that. So there are some savings to be made, at least in the transportation costs, the freight costs. Um, Of course, anybody who's already booked their flights and hotels in Sao Paulo might uh, have already committed to that. So, uh, But good it does it does mean that Tim the WAC are likely to be the first major series although there is a sports car event I think the week before it at at quarter but it's likely that they'll be the first big event certainly the big da- first big downforce event on the newly resurfaced track yes mm. uh, and whilst we're talking American sports cars shall we steer with that let's do that uh, listen to Midweek Motorsport it's series 14 episode 46 last week uh, on A's Christmas Presents she uh, mentioned a fantastic tour and I use that word advisedly uh, Corvette Racing the first, first 20 years by Nigel S. Dobby and we said if we could would have a chat with Nigel uh, whilst he's over in the UK Nigel was kind enough to pop into Hindoff Towers earlier on today to talk about the book Corvette Racing his previous book about GT1 and the future of racing Corvettes. First thing I asked him is how he managed to get, as a lad from the UK as he was then, interested in Corvettes in the first place. It started as a small child. My father 
used to buy me dinky toys when I was about five, and I had a C2 Corvette, a little pinky sort of one with yellow lights, and I lost it, I think during one of the many house moves that we had, and I always had this yearning for it, and, 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 and it, it was one of those things that I just have always loved Corvettes, and I have no explanation, as, there's no logical reason as to why I love Corvettes. But in, in fairness, at that time in the, in the UK, cars were pretty bland, and therefore there would have been a bit of exotica about it, uh, and it, wouldn't, it certainly wasn't your run-of-the-mill um, Ford Cortina or you know, Austin Allegro or anything like that. Yes, in fact, my, my father actually had a Mark I Cortina, which was, let's put it this way, slightly less than reliable, in that if, if it was damp, it basically wouldn't go. And I, I'm, that was actually one of my first experiences of working on cars, was helping my dad on Corti- fixing the damn Cortina, because it would never go. And, and, you know, it was my job to find the tool which he'd thrown into the corner of the garage, and can you go and find the, you know, seven-eighths wrench or whatever it was that he chucked. In frustration from the last time that he was trying <coughs> yes. to... Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, Corvette... Corvette Racing. Um, we've spoken to Doug Feehan uh, a number of times about this. And in fact, last Christmas, we had the, the long special um, the, about Corvette Racing, which I heartily rec- recommend because Doug was in fine form. Uh, never meant to be a broadcast piece, actually, but he kindly allowed us to, to do that. When Corvette Racing was formed, it was the first time that they had gone racing as a factory team. GM had been quite against that to start with. And what has developed since then is one of the most recognisable, the most fan-friendly racing programmes probably of all time. Yes, I mean, they they announced at SEMA in, I think it was 98, that they were going to go racing. And at that point, they'd already been into the project for nearly two years. Because, as Doug would tell you, they went to Pratt & Miller because... Doug had previous experience of working with Gary Pratt. And he basically said to him, um, I will find you the money if you can convince me that this can be a race car. So he built um, the program on that promise and said to Gary, you know, you make it, make sure it will work as a race car. And uh, I will promise you a multi-year project. You've got a copy of the book right there in front of us here. Corvette Racing, the first 20 years. Uh, in Corvette yellow. Now, now, is that velocity yellow, or which yellow is that? Uh, that's printers closest as possible to um, uh, Corvette Millennium. race yellow. Right, okay, Millennium yellow, or whatever it was called <laughs> in the time. Um, where do you start with a book like that? Okay, you've done the GT1 book before this one, so and clearly you're very well connected with, with Corvette, with GM, and with Corvette Racing, and indeed with the Corvette Museum at Bowling Green. Kentucky, but where was the premise for this book, and and how do you get started on it? Because it's a huge subject. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've become connected because of the first book, in that I I contacted Robin Pratt, Gary's wife, back in about two thousand and eight, and said, "I'm doing a book," and she went great, because she'd no idea who I was, and so she, you know she was like, "Good luck," but I don't want anything to do with it. When the book came out and she saw the book and saw what I'd put into it, she was then like, if you do another book, please let me know because we would love to help. So when I said to them about two and a half, three years ago that I was going to do another book, 
um, she said, well, the best person to speak to, the best person to work with is going to be Doug. So I basically sent Doug an early version of the of the PDF file that turned into the book. And he very kindly read it. And he'll tell you the story about his printer taking a beating because he decided to print it out. But that that was... I'd already written the book at that point. I was really basically sending him the book to verify that I hadn't made any you know, glaring errors or, or things like that. And, and he was very useful on some of the early stuff because he was able to basically um, fill in some of the gaps on the you know the prehistory to the race team, the bit between actually producing the race car and actually racing it. Because I say there was, there was really three years between the launch of the C5 as a, as a production model and, and the launch of the, of the race car. And that's because they basically took a production car to Pratt & Miller and said, right, deconstruct it and rebuild it as a race car, which is what they did. Um, and that whole period of time, obviously, is, you know, it was pre-internet, really. You know, the, you know early, late 90s, there was internet, but you know there wasn't digital photography, and so if you try and find pictures for that era, there isn't any. You know, and they tested the car pretty much in secret, uh, so there there really wasn't anybody out there that had anything that they could add apart from the people that were on the inside, which was people like Doug. I mean, Doug's been there since the start. You know, he's still there, you know, twenty three years later. I suppose that the difficulty in putting a book like this together is not what you put in but what you leave out over 460 pages I just looked there that was what I was doing while you were talking but where do you draw the line and and, you know anecdotes how far down the line do you go how many of those stories can be told because this isn't your GT1 book is a was fantastic I really enjoyed that and I used that as the basis of a lot of interviews with with uh, the the guys from Corvette including that long interview with with Doug and there was a lot of facts and figures in that about how uh, races turned out and who drove the cars um this has got a bit more editorial in it so what do you put in what do you leave out it's a great question um the first book, as you say, that was really... I wanted to tell the story of the chassis. So the the cars that Pratt & Miller built, and it wasn't so much about the team. I, could, I didn't feel I could talk really about the team because I didn't really know the, the guys on the team. The first book made them more aware of me and therefore they were you know happy to talk to me about stuff. A lot of the stuff that's in the book, I was told at the time. And, you know, you get told stuff, but you don't repeat it because it's it's not necessarily something that they would want to say at the time. But writing a book 15, 20 years later, it's history and they don't care now. But to say, you know, we, we had a, an issue with an engine on a certain car, they may not want that publicised. And therefore, you know, one of the engineers might come to me and say, you yeah, head gasket went you know, whatever, which I'll make a note of, but it won't appear in the book until, you know, 10, 15 years after the event. So they don't care at that point. Uh, and in times of, in terms of the timing, obviously 20 years, um, 1999 to 2019, but also there's a very nice edit point here because this year is the last of the front engine Corvettes and we, and we, we enter a brand new era. Well, that's actually... Uh, 20 years 
they were supposed to race the C8 in 2019. So my plan was end of C7, 2018. But then, of course, they had issues with the C8 and therefore they raced it for the for this season that's just gone 2019. So that's not in this book. This book finishes at the at the Shanghai race that they did for the WEC 2018. And I, I had a long discussion with Doug because Doug is one of these people that he has an idea and he wants it done tomorrow or preferably yesterday. And I, I explained to him that it takes like eight months from me finishing the book before it actually physically gets published. And he was like, well, what are they doing? Why, why is it taking them eight months to get from you writing it to them? That's publishing? a racing guy, though, isn't it? Yes, exactly. You know, he's, he, he's like, I've designed something. We'll produce it tomorrow. Because he gives it to the guy in the production and says, I want ten of those. And they'll go off and make him some part. So, you know, he, he basically was, well, why, why does it take eight months to produce a book? And I explained to him, well, because I've written the book in a, in a document form... They have to take that and then fit things to pages and put pictures in and then we have to do all the captions and yada, yada, yada. It's the difference between talking to somebody who engineers race cars and designs race cars and then going to a production engineer in a major manufacturer. Um, and when I worked at RML, we quite often get our manufacturing um, uh, OEM partners to send some of their engineers. And they, you know, well, you can't knock back a race date two weeks because you're not quite ready. All right, it's embarrassing if your new XYZ model from whatever manufacturer is uh, a couple of months late. But ultimately, there's no skin off anybody's noses. That's not the, that's not the way it works in race. No, exactly. I mean, they have a they can't go. Oh, we'll have the Le Mans parts ready first of July. <laughs> you know, they they sort of have to be there for the for the race. You can't. So, but with a book, you have the luxury of not so much taking your time, but I wanted the book to be not coming out 20 years after the history. That's the other thing is a lot of history books are written after people have died or people have forgotten stuff. Whereas my book, what I tend to do is I tend to write the season either as it's happening or over the winter between the end of the season and the start of the next season. Because some of it you can write at the time but in context of the whole season it might be important or it might not be important depending on how a season goes so there can be a key point in a race where they finish third which is the point that they get which gives them the title but at the time you go oh they only finished third yeah and and you know so the context of a season determines whether something is important or not important but you don't necessarily know at the time whether it is and isn't that why we love endurance racing in particular because we don't it's like Le Mans is a perfect example of that you never know when that key moment is going to happen it could be at the end of the first lap it might be at the start of the last lap as Toyota know to their to their cost and I often like and that's interesting you say that because I often when people say to me oh endurance racing 24 hours a bit boring though isn't it I said no it's like reading a really great thrilling novel that's a proper page turner but actually you can't skip to the end because it's blank pages because you don't know how it's going to end and in some ways you don't even know the context of the bit that you're reading right now until you get to that last page which hasn't been written yet so that's interesting what's next after Corvette uh, and the GT1 cars and Corvette racing the the first 
20 years. I mean, you've already got one more year after this one. Well, yes. And obviously, with the start of the C8 programme next month, um, do I carry on documenting the C8 programme? And part of the, the issue is I'm moving countries. I live currently in the States, I live in Florida, but we're moving to France. Uh, so there's only really going to be one race that I'm going to be able to go to on a regular basis. Now it's probably the most important race. Uh, the rest of the races that they, they compete at in the States, I will probably go to, I mean, I'm going to two races um, in 2020 that I know of. I'll probably go to some of the other ones, but it's going to be more difficult for me to go to the races, but yeah, I don't need to be at the races to necessarily cover the race because the the coverage that there's now on the internet, the the YouTube channel for American Le Mans, I, I watch loads of the races. You know, I go back and watch some of the races, which I then write particular races from. Some of them I watched at the time, but you you forget what happens yeah. on the details. So you go back and watch a race like, you know, the Washington race from 2002 or something like that. You you have to go back and watch it to see what happens because there's all sorts of stuff that goes on in a race that isn't necessarily covered on the TV coverage. Mm. But uh, I've heard there's a decent archive of audio somewhere. I don't know who does that, but, you know, yeah, I, some, some guys with strange voices. <laughs> That was uh, Nigel Scott Dobby, who joined us uh, earlier on today. And uh, we've got a copy of that new book, Corvette Racing, The First 20 Years. And we'll set a question for you to uh, enter and have a chance of winning that in next week's show. Ooh. Yes, oh. Uh, Johnny Palmer's been listening to the show. He says that the change the uh, WC calendar uh, still has to be ratified by the FIA World Motorsport Council. Uh, and his travel agent, presumably. Well, guess what's, who's been meeting in Paris today? Uh, it's not his travel agent. Okay. <laughs> Is that, would that be the FIA Motorsport Council by it, any chance? It, it would indeed. Excellent. Anyway, I've given you a taste of this. Uh, let's uh, get some nominations for the first couple of categories. Uh, six categories in this year's uh, Man of the Year awards. Show of the Year. I'm still calling it the Man of the Year. Okay. Because you don't have to be a man to be Man of the Year. Okay. Uh, so Are you saying man as in uh, human? I'm as in homo sapiens. Yes, yeah. okay. Right, okay. Uh, so... Six categories are uh, Man of the Year, which could also be a woman or a transgender driver. Yeah. Uh, young driver, mm-hmm. who has to be 21 or younger on the 1st of January 2019. Okay. Uh, there's the non-driver, which is someone who has not competed in a uh, race in uh, 2019. I think that's... F- oh, right. So that could be a driver who didn't have a drive. Well, are they they known as a driver? driver? What have they achieved in 2019 if they're a driver without a drive? Well, could have. I don't know. Uh, And also driver categories could also be riders. Yes, I I understand. I think that was implicit. Um, And co-drivers as well. Yes, also. Uh, Race of the year, car of the year, team of the year are the other three categories and it's uh, race of the year that we're going to look at first of all so uh, we're going to uh, 
go through our team and get their nominations, uh, we have asked uh, Johnny and Nick and Shay and you, John, mm-hmm. uh, for your nominees and, uh, nominations, and you've all agreed. Uh, and Joe Bradley said, no, I'm sunning myself by the pool. So <laughs> That's right. No, nothing from Joe Bradley, unfortunately, today. No. Uh, but we're going to start with Race of the Year, uh, and we're going to start with Shay Adam. Good evening, Shay. What is your nomination for Race of the Year? Race of the Year, definitely one stands above the rest. The Watkins Glen Salem's six-hour this year, I, I just got goosebumps even mentioning it again. Captivating. It was the most paranoid race in the world because we weren't sure that both Mazdas were going to make it to the end of the race. They both had issues as we were getting closer and closer to the checkered flag. But it was to be. It finally happened. And John Doonan's tears of joy rang up and down the pit lane. Everyone celebrated that win. Okay, so Watkins Glen. Uh, next, we're going to hear from, go, yes. from Nick Damon. Hooray! <laughs> uh, Nick, your race of the year, please. Race of the year, slightly tricky, because the best race I saw once again was an RC race, but I tried that last year, and no one voted for it, because no one saw it. So my race of the year is a far more accessible German Grand Prix. As uh, John often says, just add water, and you'll have a crazy race, but it was a fantastically entertaining event from start to finish, all sorts of accidents, all sorts of incidents, uh, a great drive by Josh Verstappen to win a great, even greater drive in many ways by Daniel Kvyat to come third, and even better match. drive by Alexander Albon to finish off the podium. So definitely, for all the ramifications, all the excitement, it's that super wet, super interesting German Grand Prix. Uh, I think Nick might have been talking about the 1994 German Grand Prix, perhaps. Good. <laughs> uh, uh, Johnny okay. Palmer, you're racing. Your race of the year next. A very easy decision for me, this one. Uh, I have witnessed many races since it, but it was one of the early ones in the 2019 season and just blew us all away from memory. Over at Bathurst, where the race went down to literally the wire and Matty Campbell stormed his way through the order. Um, it went. The race went a lot longer than everyone was expecting. One or two teams, I think, banking on a safety car, which never came. And, yeah, yeah, the young Aussie working his way through in the Porsche, I think overtaking two cars in the last four laps, uh, mightily impressive, and that will live long in the memory. The Bathurst, 12 hours. And, John, uh, you go last. Uh, For me, um, I can't argue with any of those. They were all very good. But they were all wrong because the race of the year this year was the Hancock 24 hours of Barcelona. Now, I like an old-fashioned endurance race as much as anyone else where there's maybe 10 or 5 or 8 laps between first and second, but, you know, there's always something going on. This wasn't one of those. This was a new age endurance race where the gap between first and second, Lamborghini, Porsche, Barwell and Herbeth, except for when the cars were doing their pit stops, planned pit stops, was never more than about 90 seconds for the whole 24 hours. And it was a contiguous 24 hours. It was edge of the seat stuff all the way through the race. A proper 21st century sprint endurance race. Hancock 24 hours at Barcelona. Uh, next, we move on to the nominations for Car of the Year. Back to Shay. 
Well, in terms of the car of the year, the Acura DPI stood above the rest this year in IMSA competition. And, well, it was the top class of IMSA competition. Manufacturer championship for the first time in 2019 and only its second time of trying. And the most spectacular record of all, only one non-podium finish all year coming at the Sebring 12-hour. The eventual champions went on to stand on the podium every race between Long Beach and up until the final race of the season at Petit Le Mans, where they were just short, spectacular reliability from these cars and the speed. They got a handful of pole positions, too. Uh, Nick Damon? My nomination for Car of the Year might surprise some of you, but it is for the Gen 2 Formula E car. Made its actual racing debut just after, I think, this uh, Man of the Year show last year in the middle of December and has proved to be an exceptionally raceable car, uh, as seen by the way the drivers have thrown it round the street surface and, most importantly, took away that one major issue within the Formula E Championship, the fact they had to change cars. Suddenly, range anxiety, range anxiety was gone and it was a chance for everyone to race for the full 45 minutes. Plus one lap, the Formula E Gen 2 car. My nomination, car of the year. Uh, Johnny Palmer. There's been a dominant car in this year's British Touring Car Championship and uh, straight out of the box. It was fast. I think the officials uh, and those looking after the championship tried to peg it back, but all three versions of the West Surrey Racing uh, BMW uh, were very, very strong. Colin Turkington in the final race of the year, I think... A practically written off the championship but relying on some very good results earlier on in the season and a Dan Camish Honda which crashed in the final uh, race meant that the BMW came through to win and I mean that was just unstoppable when you consider they'd only had what one winter period to develop it and then they were straight into racing but it was fast from the very start. And John? Uh, I think this is a pretty easy one for me for car of the uh, the outgoing version of the Porsche 911 RSR, the GTE, GT Le Mans car, uh, last year last year of competition for it, uh, swept the board in the American IMSA series, also did yeah, pretty well uh, in international competition, taking all the big championships and most of the big races as well. Replacement car for that next year in IMSA, the new car's already started, of course, in WEC, but for me, the car of the year has to be uh, the outgoing version of the Porsche RSR, the 911 RSR. Midweek Motorsport. Half time. And while we swap ends, here's what's coming up. Uh, still lots to come tonight, including a couple of guests. Jamie Howe will join us with a look back at the uh, National Hot Rod Association season, NHRA. Yep, that's drag racing for those of you who aren't. Uh, all fair with the uh, nomenclature from the States. Uh, Jamie joining us in the second half of tonight's programme. More nominations for our show of the year, plus your tweets, please, on at Specutainment. We've still got to talk about the big sports car news. That's the Peugeot Rebellion story. We'll get into that in the second half of the show as well. But next, it's our big interview, and we'll be talking Asian Le Mans series. Their first round has happened and the man at the head, Cyril Tesh Verlin, will be with us next. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Delighted to welcome back to Midweek Motorsport the uh, man who looks after the team that produces 
one of the big success stories in endurance racing over the last few years, and that is the Asian Le Mans series. So it's time to say hello again to Cyril Teshvalen. Cyril, welcome back to the show. Hi, uh, hello, John, and thank you for having me again. You know, it's always always a pleasure because it seems that every time you invite me. It's to discuss good news. <laughs> well, that's because you've had so much good news. It's a fair point that you make, uh, Cyril, to be honest, because I think the last time we were talking uh, was about the uh, the series going back to Australia, which is your next round, and we'll talk about that. Well, not going back, if I may. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not going back, going. Yes, going, indeed. <laughs> exactly true. Um, You've had your first round of the 2019-2020 season and for anybody who works in motor racing, getting the season under underway is, is a great milestone. Heck of a lot of work to get to that point. So you've done your first round. What's your takeaway from the, from the first round? Because there's good news coming out of it all the way through with an increased grid, with a good event, and you're off and running now. So is that a bit of a sigh of relief for, for you and, and, and the organising team, Cyril? Yeah, it, it is. Because uh, first and foremost, uh, the, the team... Uh, the Asian Le Mans team has been waiting for, for so long, you know, the, the, the gap between the the end of the previous season and, and the start of the, this one is uh, is long, as, uh, as we know. And uh, we're just so, so eager and keen on starting again. And of course, uh, starting in China, having achieved what I believe has been a successful event when it comes to the crowd and the, the quality of the field. And, and the good racing, the, the, the action on track has been really, really interesting in all different classes. And, of course, China is one of the most important markets for uh, the Asian Amor series and, of course, for, for the ACO in the region. And don't forget, we have for the second year in a row uh, an even titled sponsor, Agile, uh, who this, which this year added another brand, Lohas World, um, which is a concept brand um, affiliated to, to what they do as Agile, as a div- um, property developer company. And it's very, very important for us to, to keep that confidence and having such a big Chinese company aboard, of course, help us a lot uh, developing and educate, um, educating Chinese audience, the young Chinese audience to endurance racing, to what a LMP car is, and the, what the Le Mans 24 is about uh, eventually. And I, I have to say, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot, whether it's on this show or we had a, a long chat at the Le Mans 24 hours uh, this year when you and the rest of the team uh, hosted a get-together for anyone who wanted to know a little bit more about the Asian Le Mans series. Um, it was always the, uh, the aim to attract and develop talent and teams from the region, from Asia. And, and we're seeing that happen now, that hard work that you guys have put in over the last few years. And all of a sudden, the first Japanese LMP2 team, Keito Yoshino, are in. Um, that's, that's fantastic. And that's, that's know, massive news, isn't it? You just said a few years. It's already five, John. No. And when I realized that, since the ACO took over, yes. And when I realized that before the Shanghai round, I said, oh, my God. We often say time flies, but it has flown so fast. Five years since the ACO took over, since I'm aboard as a CEO of that affiliate company, 
doing everything possible to really develop and anchor the, the ACO and the endurance racing environment in, in Asia. And of course, it is so rewarding, so good, so satisfying to see that we have managed years after years to give people confidence again in the platform, in the product, because this was the most important thing to do in the first place before those teams in Asia wanting to be part of it again would join us. And now that's the case with a GT field made of 90% of Asian-based teams and drivers and having managed to attract for the first time a Japanese LMP2 team, it's something which is, to my opinion, mark a real new step in the growth of the Asian Le Mans series. I'm saying growth because, of course, we are always aiming at doing bigger and better. Um, and it's not the end. It's probably the start of a new chapter, a new era, fingers crossed. And the story about K2 Uchino Racing is a very good one because <laughs> having Haruki Kurosawa back in an LMP car within the environment of an ACO series, it's something which is great because Aoki... <laughs> you may remember that, was driving a Courage LMP1 in the European Le Mans series, uh, which I started 15 years ago. So, I mean, and, and seeing those teams, uh, D-Station uh, and uh, J-Lock and uh, K2, Chino and Kagai coming back is very, very important for us because these teams coming for the, from the Super GT Championship, which is a very competitive, very strong championship, is another sign. And I think that looking at the entry list, and you probably have it in front of you, looking at the, at the variety of nationalities, mm. I think we have more than 22 different teams' nationality, is something which is very important, very, very important. You, since the ACO took over, you've never been frightened to try different things. So... For example, uh, we've got LMP3s racing with LMP2s. We've got two different LMP2 categories with your LMP2 AM uh, category and a, a win in the first round for RLR Motorsport, M Sport, who we know very well, uh, of course. Is this also part of, of of the development idea to make sure that there is... Almost a, a, um, a not a run what you brung, but certainly listen, guys. If you want to make the commitment to our series, then come and bring those cars, and we will continue to give you a platform at least in the short to medium term. Yes, indeed, and I think that when we made that kind of a bet last last year, saying that it was about time, of course, to introduce the 2017 LMP2 spare cars, but. Keeping in mind that gentlemen drivers are so important for endurance racing that um, giving them the opportunity to keep fighting for their own class using the old spec P2 cars would be would be probably the way for this 2019-2020 season to grow the LMP2 field. And as a result, having 11 LMP2 cars altogether this year is is great i mean it's it is very important and of course wh whatever we decide whatever happened when it comes to um the eligibility of the old spec lmp2 cars there will there must be a class in p2 which would be reserved for amateur drivers yeah. and i think this is this is really important yes of course uh, the the result 
Uh, first of all, it was great racing. Let me say that straight away. Um, we we have racing and great racing, and yeah, they are, they are in Asia. Yeah, very good teams. Yeah, you know, and this is something we have to promote. And I think people are getting turned on to that, Cyril. If I'm I'm honest, um, from you know just watching the. Uh, Radio Show Limited listeners collective on on Facebook, watching Twitter. Um, they're not always at a good time uh, for for Europe to watch, um, but with the, the package that you guys have, there's uh, ways you to can, look back. You can see you can, it's free all over the world. You can see it exactly. anywhere, at, at, anytime you want, on your uh, smartphone or laptop or whatever, and anytime. So you can replay it. Exactly. And we have the highlights as well. So Your highlight uh, shows. I've always enjoyed your highlight shows uh, from the Asian Le Mans series. Uh, and frankly, with now 24 cars entered for that first uh, race uh, at Shanghai, um, I don't know how you fit it all tw- in. Tw- okay, them. so it's tw- 26 full season entries. And unfortunately, we had that uh, uh, withdrawal from the uh, AVM uh, team because of, of a, an uh, en- engine uh, failure on one of the uh, BMW M6 GT3. And, and of course, you, you know, the so-called case of force majeure having uh, prevented uh, require racing to uh, to be able to 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 properly enter the the second Ligier uh, GSP2 but yeah it's a 26 car field for the full season and uh, start with 24 yes that was, I mean great I don't know how you distill that down into your highlights uh, package but I'm seeing a bit more of a buzz about it a lot more of a buzz about it now and, it, and that which is great to see that's exactly what you and I have talked about um, in in the past here on this show and and when we've been uh, chatting more socially as as well um, th- th- there was a change in the results at the end of, of the, the four hours of Shanghai, drive time infraction for Thunderhead Carlin Racing. Uh, it's unfortunate, Cyril, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, post-race uh, penalties being uh, applied to endurance racing recently, but yeah. it, it's unfortunate. I mean, those things, you, moni- you monitor them in, in real time, but Unfortunately, those penalties can only be presumably applied as as the chequered flag has fallen or just after. Yeah, it it is unfortunate. The the timekeeping report comes after the end of the race. Uh, And this is where uh, the stewards uh, actually are made aware of the infraction. It is really unfortunate because the racing on the track has been great. Mm. Um, I'm so happy that we have in Asian Le Mans series three different LMP2 chassis at the three first row, which is very nice. Uh, if, you, if you combine Oreca, Orus, and the Dallara and the Ligier, we have actually four uh, LMP2 brands, I would say. Uh, so the variety is there. But coming back to square one, uh, yes, it, it is unfortunate. And it's... But the rule is the rule. And the team, honestly, in all honesty, um, and I, I really I really failed for the guys, but they immediately recognized that they made a mistake. And, I mean, that's racing too, unfortunately. But the story was nice. And I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Carlin Thunderhead uh, will uh, turn up at Thailand Ben in Australia with uh, one thing in, in, in mind, winning the race. Because they, they have shown so... so so, so, so much competition, so, so much strength, and the, the, the driver lineup is very good. So I, I would say that having seen what happened in Shanghai, the three last rounds should be really amazing too when it comes to the close competition. And I, I really think that when K2 Uchino Racing will know 
more about the, the Reka P2. Uh, Shantong and uh, Aruki Kurosawa will probably um, close the gap with, uh, with, the, um, with the other top LMP2 cars. You mentioned going to Australia uh, next. Fabulous to have top-class ACO endurance racing back in Australia. There's a big, uh, there's a big market for it down there. It's been a very long time since we had prototype cars of this quality uh, racing there. First visit for the Asian Le Mans series. Um, it's pretty close after the the start of the year, so you guys won't get much rest or or much. Uh, uh, partying uh, over the the new year break. Are you looking forward to going down there with the teams uh, and with your team, Cyril? Of course, and I mean, having been able to reach that agreement with Sam Shaheen and Thailand Ben was probably ticking one of the most important box for us because it's very important. It's part of the Asia Pac um, region and markets, and they are so excited. They are really expecting us with uh, open and wide arms and um, it's teams are happy uh, media are super happy uh, australian are super happy we are super happy i mean it is something which is probably uh, should be or will be a, a landmark event for for thailand ben and for the asian more series yeah uh, and uh, news while we're, we're talking about calendars this time last year we were talking about uh, the bend being on the calendar uh, for the first time uh, and news already about 2020 2021 uh, which broke at the back end of of last week and yeah. i'm v- i'm very very uh, excited and envious about this. Uh, what, what's the thinking? What's the thinking here? Back to Japan for the series. Yes, John. This is this is another box that we needed to take back. Um, of course, um, we always said that we wanted to go back to Japan. We we needed to find the. The, the right option and you know dealing we're not going to have the long conversation again but dealing with all the weather constraint the logistic constraint the calendar constraints we yes. have and uh, well it's it was important for us to go to japan but being in a position to go back to japan as the opening round of next year's season and have it held at suzuka circuit which is going to be the first time, I think, for an ACO event and for first time for mm-hmm. sure for the, for the Asian Le Mans series. It's a great news because um, especially now that we have these, these four Japanese teams competing in yes. GT and, and LMP cars uh, in the LMP2 class in the Asian Le Mans series, it's great news because um, also, you know, we, we wanted um, to, to announce it as soon as possible. Because we, we, it's, it's important for us to, to show our teams that we keep working uh, on developing the, the series for the years to come. Um, of course, it, is, um, it gives them visibility. And, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted because, you know, it's uh, ticking three boxes at the, at, at the same time. <laughs> Going back to Japan, starting the, the season in Japan, which is something new. Um, and it's you know, weather-wise, uh, it's it's better to start uh, at the end of November than uh, having to to uh, to deal with uh, the, the weather in 
early mid December. And Suzuka is an iconic racetrack. Don't get me oh, wrong. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm saving my air miles already, Cyril. I'm saving my air miles already. I'm telling you. <laughs> so this is something which, of course, should give the Asian Le Mans series even more attractiveness and appeal for, for next season. Now, you and I have talked before as well about when is the right time to expand to five events. What you're not seeing here is that 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 becomes the first round of the season. Japan, Suzuka, first round of the season, sometime towards the end of, of November 2020, 2020, starting off the 2020-2021 season. But you're not seeing that, that China has been replaced here, are you? Absolutely not. No, no, no. John, don't get me wrong. We, we, we want to go to China and we will go to China for sure. We have to, and we want to. So this is, uh, I'm not saying that we are not going to China at all. To the contrary. Mm. We'll wait uh, with bit of breath for the rest of the, the announcements. Let's, that's, that's a year away, pretty much. So yeah. l- let's, let's talk. We've talked about Talon uh, Benz. Uh, Malaysia and Buriram uh, in uh, Thailand, Sepang and Buriram, uh, the, the last two rounds, the second half of the season, both in, in February to look forward to as well. If I was to sit down with you then um, in the first week of March and have a chat with you, what would you say to me would have been a successful season, Cyril, once you've got your four races out of the way. What, what, you're talking about ticking boxes. Which boxes would you absolutely like to have ticked, underlined and made sure that your list was complete if we were sitting down at the first week of, of March next year? That we had a safe season for, first and foremost. Of course. That we managed to attract some local race-by-race entries, which uh, is going to be the case. Still TBC, but the tendency is that there might be additional car or cars from Thailand and onwards and growing for the last two rounds in uh, Malaysia and uh, Thailand, respectively. And that we have really, all over the season, brought Asian Le Mans to another level. Mm. Um, yes, and of course, I would also, in return, ask you a question. John, we're in March 2020. What do you think about my 2020-2021 calendar? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Start, starting, as we've said, in, in Suzuka. And we'll be looking forward to, to hearing a little bit more than that. Just to finish off, Cyril, and thank you for your time, because I know how busy you are. My pleasure. Um, the the uh, invitations to Le Mans... Uh, that go with the uh, class positions in the Asian Le Mans series. Um, how important are they now? Um, they've always been important, but how more, almost more important are they now because of the level of competition that is rising so much in the European Le Mans series, in the Asian Le Mans series, and of course even uh, in... Uh, IMSA and the WEC. How important is it, do you think, for your teams to get to Le Mans with those those uh, invitations and uh, and to then be able to measure themselves against other ACO runners? Yes, they are very important, and it's part of the part of the attractiveness, part of the package. But having a bigger field now, uh, these invitations to Le Mans are going to be even more deserved. You know. Because teams turning up in Asian Le Mans series, and this is something which is new as well, 
they of course join the series because they know that Asian Le Mans is the professional platform in Asia for them to step up the ladder with a view to go to eventually Le Mans 24 and all the WEC. But they want to win the championship. The Asian Le Mans series is not only a gateway to grab a Le Mans invite. Le Mans series, the Asian Le Mans series, is a real, through, genuine, competitive championship Good with point. a very professional organization. And teams, most of the teams joining the series, know, as a matter of fact, that it's either A, too early for them, or B, it's too big step for them to go to Le Mans the year after, after having joined Asian Le Mans in year one. So they are here to learn. And those who are going to be invited are those who are going to be the best. And I wish them the best of luck in Le Mans 24. But now, Asian Le Mans not only has managed to attract more Asian teams, new newcomers or Asian teams that are back, but it is, apart from the Le Mans invites, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's four Le Mans invites out of 26 cars entered. Yes. I, I can't imagine that all of them are just thinking about doing it for the sake of, grab, of grabbing the invite. Yeah, that's a very and good point. And it, it's, it's a learning process. And don't get me wrong, this is something which is very good, learning process. There are many, many teams starting in Europe in the Michelin Le Mans Cup with an MP3 with a view to one day, two or three years after, moving to the ELMS in P3 and then moving up the ladder in, in the LMP2 class in the European Le Mans series. And then some of them make the jump uh, to the WEC, and this is the beauty of it. So, of course... We need to expand our activities in Asia, and we have plans for that, which we can discuss further in, 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 in a future interview. But the Asian Le Mans series, and don't, don't, don't forget what I told you many times, we are aiming at building Asian Le Mans series as the reference endurance racing series for Asia. I'm not pretending anything, just because we are aiming at doing this, because this is the plan. This is what the ACO would like to do. And we are, don't get me wrong, we are not competing with anyone else already uh, installed or in place in Asia. We, we bring LMP2 cars, LMP3 cars, we do endurance racing. This is different. This is complementary to, to what it uh, does already ex exist in the uh, Asian motorsports landscape. And this is what we do, and hopefully what we do good. And in, in, the, the, in a, the, the best possible way, Every year, trying to improve everything together, media package, uh, coverage, organization, everything. And talking about media, I mean, uh, we, we, we discussed the, the, um, the other day with, uh, with Jane Rowe, the media delegate, and the, the, the first figures we, we managed to, to gather uh, together for the Shanghai round are amazing. I mean, we are talking about millions of real viewers because yes. it's live stream across China on different uh, online uh, streaming platform. And I'm telling you, you know, back to the question about the fact that we would replace or not uh, China by Japan. No, no, no. Of course, we must go back to China. I want to go back to China because China is a very important market. And this is where and from where we are going to keep building LMP3 in, in Asia, I'm, I'm sure. And don't forget, in 2020, the LMP3 Cup Australia starts. It's an addition to the, the portfolio of LMP uh, racing opportunities for, for the people interested in the region. It's getting there. I told you five years already. So I, I, can't, I just can't wait for the next five, you know, John. I think the point that you've made there, Cyril, uh, as, uh, as we just wind up here, uh, that really shows the difference is that in five years, which you and I know is a short time, uh, in motor racing, a very short time in, in motor racing, you've managed to make the Asian Le Mans series 
a go-to event. Yes, you mentioned, of course, we've, of course you have to mention the invitations to Le Mans, but is it, it's a series in its own right that people want to go and compete in. And yes, it can be used as a jumping off point, but people want to go and race in it because of the competitive nature, because of the coverage and because yeah. of the professionalism that is uh, shown by all of the, the teams and, and drivers and, there. And, and that, the atmosphere. That, and, and the atmosphere in the paddock. Exactly. A very true. important part of, you know, a very important ingredient of the recipe. Well, and I think you and the team should be very proud that you've managed to do that in I'm those very five pro- years. I'm very proud of them and I'm, I'm just so humble and grateful for all the support and the growing support we, we have from all over the world, really. It's brilliant stuff, sir. This is, this is fueling us, you know. This is when you realize that you're, you're lucky to, to be doing what you do. But, yeah, five years, it's very short. But five years, it can be very long, too. <laughs> uh, especially in the, in, the, in the bad moments. But, uh, you know, I look on the bright side and always look at the, the glass half full. And I think that... Uh, we're going to keep pouring a very, very uh, good thing in that glass. Great to speak to you, Cyril. Uh, the critical mass that you. you and I have very talked much. talked about many times before seems to have been achieved, and it is growing very quickly. Cyril Teshvill, the man at the head of the Asian Le Mans series, joining us here on Midweek Motorsport. Have a good Christmas and New Year, as much as you can enjoy it, Cyril. You too, John. Thank you for inviting me. Speak soon. Ah, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Cyril. Thank you. Cyril Teshvill, uh, from Asian Le Mans series. And you've been tweeting about that. Dave Alcock uh, says, always enjoy listening to Cyril and hearing about Asian Le Mans series developments. Your enthusiasm is infectious, reassures us that the series is in such good hands. And good to hear serious consideration being given to gentlemen drivers. Also to the investment in LMP2 cars already made by the teams. Good to hear the long-term future of the series. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me is such a fundamental consideration. Uh, more of your tweets, please. At Spectatainment, still plenty to come. Uh, Tim, some nominations, please. Uh, well, you're not getting a nomination from me, but we are going to get Shay's nomination now for Team of the Year, Shay. Team Porsche was the story of 2019. Globally, uh, they got wins at Bathurst, but we're going to focus in here because the Porsche GT team, specifically running in IMSA, Two non-podium finishes in 11 races, and those six race wins in a row, including the 12 hours of Sebring and the Watkins Glen six hours, that's pretty hard to accomplish in and of itself. Then you throw on top of that the five pole positions that they earned this year when they didn't always have the fastest car of the weekend. Just spectacular showing from Porsche. Nick Damon, uh, your nominees or nomination, please. Well, for Team of the Year, I suppose the old adage, uh, the old Roger Kipling poem, if you can keep your head well all around on losing theirs, especially those based in Marinello, you will have the championship, my son, or more importantly, six championships in a row, drivers and constructors. The Team of the Year has to be Mercedes F1. I will take truck no other competition at the pinnacle of the motorsport. They have done it again and again and again with fantastic teamwork across all all the factories, Bricksworth, uh, Stuttgart, and of course, the main one in Brackley. Fantastic performance. Mercedes F1, my team of the year. And Johnny Palmer. Team of the year is about uh, a squad that performed very well in the ATO rules racing in Europe because both in the Michelin Le Mans Cup and in the European Le Mans series, 
Lucic Racing landed on the scene from uh, Switzerland, although with strong ties to the USA. Pretty much AF Corsa behind the scenes, but um, Lucic Racing had been making big waves in the International GT Open. It was a big step into the GTE world from GT3. They managed to bag the ELMS title in 2019 and came perilously close to winning the Michelin Le Mans Cup. It was just that Fabien Laverne was involved in a crash in the opening lap at Portimao. But apart from that, if that hadn't happened, I think it would have been a double championship winning season for Lucic Racing. And John Heintoff, your non-driver of the year. My team of the year or the team, non- team of the year, yeah. All right, sorry, I thought you said non-drive of the year there. Um, may I uh, humbly suggest that it's Team Penske. Which Team Penske? I hear you say all of them because they've all won races or championships. It's been an extraordinary year for everything with the big P on it, whether it was Virgin Australian Supercars, whether it was uh, Acura Team Penske in IMSA, the... Uh, Penske IndyCar team did rather well uh, as well. Basically, they've cleaned up in everything, uh, even in the NASCAR series that they're involved with. Team Penske, I hear what you're saying, Nick, but frankly, that's one series, albeit 20 20 races this year, but Penske have done it in everything that they have competed in, and that's why they're team of the year. Uh, Now non-driver of the year, and now back to Shea. Non-driver of the year has to be Mr. The Captain, Mr. Penske himself. His <laughs> teams were champions in IMSA in the DPI category, IndyCar, and Virgin Australia Supercars. They made it to the final, well, semifinals in the Monster Energy Cup and the Xfinity Series. They got race wins in both of those series as well. Won the Indianapolis 500, won the Bathurst 1000. And Mr. Penske rounded out the year by purchasing IndyCar and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 2019 is a year he'll remember for a long time. Uh, Let's go to Johnny Palmer next. This took a bit of thinking about because there have been one or two certain chief chief engineers, mechanics that uh, have been worthy of this title. But um, Edex Sport worked incredibly hard through the course of the year and had a bit of luck, uh, you might say, in the final race at the ELMS season at Portimao, but they were champions in the end. So I've gone for uh, Edex Sports race engineer and technical director, Julien Brio, as my non-driver of the year. And uh, Nick Damon? My nomination for non-driver, I think I've made this nomination about four times before, but it's Toto Wolf, the <laughs> team boss from Mercedes, who has piloted another victorious season, despite the sad loss of his uh, associate mentor and friend, Nicky Lauda. Once again, Mercedes have been imperious as a team and shown all the other teams in F1 how to do it, and that's no mean feat to uh, keep doing that year after year after year. Six from six from six. Six constructor championships, six driver championships in six years. Says all you need to know. Toto Wolf, my non-driver of the year. Uh, John. I'm torn. I'm torn. Because... Like Natalie and Brulia. Oh, indeed. Uh, very strange key that was sung in. Um, I want to have an honourable mention for somebody here, and it's... We are often in these categories talk about people who've had winning records, as Nick's just mentioned, like Toto Wolf. The honourable mention, I would like to go to someone who I feel has made a big effect and helped turn the team round, although they still haven't really won anything this year. And that would be at McLaren for 
Andres Seidel, who came across from Porsche before that. It was a BMW F1, of course. And I, I know it's a, a bit of a chicken and egg question. Did uh, did the package get better uh, or did the results get better? Which one begat the other? But what you can't deny is that since Andreas Seidel has been there, things have changed. Honourable mention for him. However, my non-driver of the year, and this is, as often I like to throw in here, a bit of a, um, a career award uh, for Scott Atherton, outgoing president of IMSA, previously of the American Le Mans series, uh, left sports car racing in North America in a, in a better place than he found it, has uh, presided over some difficult times with the uniting of two very different philosophical uh, series. They came from two different philosophical positions, uh, lost his friend and mentor, Don Penos, just what a year, just over a year ago as well in that. Uh, so my non-driver of the year, with due respect to everybody else, is uh, is Scott Atherton. OK, uh, final two categories uh, coming up later in the show. Uh, but let's go back to uh, FIA news. Right. And uh, the FIA World Motorsport Council has awarded world championship status to yes. Formula E. Finally. We've talk- we talked about this how long ago, Tim? Uh, we talked about it two World Motorsport Council meetings ago when uh, uh, it was rumoured that it might happen. Why and is it, it has. why was it not eligible to be or not why had it not been considered as a world championship before that it had been considered yes. before but had always uh, fallen down on either number of uh, uh continents that it raced on or um number of manufacturers mm. that were in it okay and now it fulfills all of that so it marches on. And whatever anybody thinks, I do think it makes a difference. I think it particularly will make a difference. That means you'll get a, an FIA world champion manufacturer, constructor, won't you? Uh, or is it just a driver's championship? A there will be... It will I make a difference to, to the... here. Well, while you read that, it will make a difference to the drivers. I remember when the WEC came into... Being after it being the Intercontinental um, Trophy, and pro drivers of the caliber of you know Alan McNish and uh, Tom Christensen and others said to me, "Look, this is the only chance I'll ever have of going for a FIA World Championship." So yeah, I'm up for it. And will it make me try harder? Yeah, it will. I always give it my best, but it'll mean something if I can say that I was an FIA World Champion and get invited to the to the Night of Champions. And so it does make a difference. And is is there a a, a manufacturer's stroke teams World Championship as well, Tim? It doesn't say. Well, if there is, it will make a difference to those people as well. Um, it, it, the the face of Formula E has changed now forever with the which with Porsche and Audi coming in. It's all got exceptionally serious now and big money will be being spent by those two manufacturers at the very least. BMW and Mercedes-Benz not afraid to put their hands in their pockets either. And they will want marketing capital out of that. Just the virtue signalling that has been done on a relatively small amount of budget to now for FE will not be enough for those people 
those manufacturers anymore and having it as a world championship will undoubtedly help when the checks are being signed in the boardrooms and what are we getting out of this oh we can say fia world championship manufacturer in formula e and when all of those manufacturers are transitioning into full electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles that will make a difference and i do think it will all make a difference which formula e driver has been sailing this week rod stewart uh wasn't aware he was uh, entered into the... Uh, Signed for Neil, quietly, quietly, just uh, very quietly. Uh, it's not the answer I was looking for, though. Uh, who's the sort of a sailing-type person? Don't know. Sam Bird. Sam Bird is correct. Oh, that was a total guess, but I know that he lives up in the northeast now, next to the coast. So And, and therefore, yes, therefore obviously sailing. sailing must be. He had to go all the way to the south, of, south of France to do it, though. Very nice. Far, far worse doing it better than doing it off Hartley Pools, which will a bit... Be a bit I don't know. Have you been to Marseille recently? Right, well, true, yeah. Uh, Rebellion. Let's go back to sports cars. Ah, I thought it was. I thought it was a Star Wars. Is it not the Star Wars story? No, not interested in that. New Bond trailer out today, though. Have you seen that? No, not interested in that. You can see um, my house in it. Really? Yeah. How lovely. Um, uh, Rebellion uh, and Peugeot. Right, go on. Are linking up. They are. Now, this is interesting. It's Peugeot. Like Ipecar. Ipecar, yes. Um, although we don't know it's called Ipecar or indeed anything like that yet. Uh, following pretty hot on the heels of Peugeot announcing rather out of the blue a couple of weeks ago that uh, they'd have some more information for us early in 2020, but they were committing to a 2022 uh, entry into the FIA World Endurance Championship. Um, news today, in French originally, uh, from Peugeot Sport, saying that they're going to uh, combine forces, team up with the uh, the Rebellion Racing Team. Now, the Rebellion Racing Team is run by Orica uh, at the moment. Um, what they haven't said is who will be building the car, although they have said the... Uh, underpinnings of the car and particularly the engines and the hybridization will be handled by Peugeot store uh, uh, will be handled handled by Peugeot sport some discussion about what that actually means in terms of 2020 uh, the man at the head um, Jean-Pierre Imperato uh, saying uh, we haven't said which month that will be but um the season starts if it's 2022 in September, so that would be the third season of the regulations, assuming that they do launch uh, in September this year, that the Persia will be involved in, and that would mean, of course, they would be, as we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago at Le Mans in 2023, uh, in time for the 100th anniversary of the first running of Le Mans. If they were to come in any other time in 2020 that could mean of course that they joined in part way through the 2021 2022 season um but if they joined in then that would mean that they'd be unlikely to get an invitation for Le Mans and I say that and people are going to say of course not they'll get an invitation for Le Mans it would be unprecedented if they got an invitation for Le Mans, which is handed out in February before the car had raced in an ACO series, before the car had raced anywhere. And it would be exceptionally unfair to 
deny any other team or manufacturer a shot at the 2022 Le Mans to put Peugeot Rebellion in. I think it would be a public relations nightmare. I think they'd never hear the last of it. They certainly won't hear the last of it from me if that happens. And I think it, it would be just plain wrong if they got an entry to that year's Le Mans without having competed in the whole of the 2021-22 season. I would be... The only reason that it would be acceptable is if there weren't enough applications for invitations to give them an invitation. And I, as we've just heard from Cyril, and we know from ELMS, and we know from WEC numbers, the likelihood that there would be fewer applications than there are places available at Le Mans 2022, whilst not out of the question, is highly unlikely. Uh, so we wait to see what is happening. There would be nothing to stop Persian Rebellion, and it is the, the rendering that we saw today did have Persian Rebellion on the front of the the car, which looked rather like the Peugeot concept that we've seen in the past. Um, there would be the opportunity for Peugeot Rebellion to enter in 2022. There'd potentially be the Sebring race, a race after that, then Spa, all before Le Mans. But, whether, but none of those before the invitations are, are revealed. And it may be that they do some races in, in the 2021-22 season, but they should not, and I'm going to say this right now, and I'll take any criticism that you want to expect your tournament, they should not even be being considered for a Le Mans 2022 entry uh, at the expense of people who are supporting full seasons of ACO competition. All right, uh, before we move on from sports car racing, uh, a shout for at sports car WW on Twitter and sports car worldwide on Facebook. Uh, they are running a a fundraiser to replace the 600 quid, 600 pounds, a little more than 600 pounds, that Mission Motorsport had stolen from a track day at Goodwood uh, earlier on this year. Opportunity to win yourself a, a Le Mans trip. All the details at Sports at Sports Car WW on Twitter and on their Facebook page. Uh, let's. Uh, uh, say thank you very much to those guys for trying to uh, right a heinous wrong when the donation box was stolen at Goodwood. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport Series 14, episode 46. Uh, we promised you Jamie Howe and NHRA. Jamie, welcome to the show. Good evening. How are you? Hi, John. I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, all good, thank you. It's been a cracking season, hasn't it? Oh, it was a great season. It was, uh, it started off and it was really anybody's ball game. You know, you never know when a season kicks off, if there's going to be a repeat winner at the beginning. And we didn't have that in any trade this season. It took six races before um, someone won top fuel more than once. So it was really neat. Uh, And in terms of you traveling around the country to see this, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've stood on the line uh, next to the Christmas tree, when top fuel funny cars have been doing their burnouts, it's um it's a life changing experience, isn't it? It is something that you cannot explain to somebody because it it uses all five of your senses just to realize what's happening around you. You you can't get the sense of it from television. You have to go and you have to see it in person and smell it and feel it and watch it 
to really understand what it is that's happening. Is it still as popular as it ever was, Jamie? Because, I mean, I, I'm old enough, much older than you, but I'm old enough <laughs> to remember quarter miles, and it hasn't been a quarter mile for a while. Although th- there's talk of bringing quarter mile back for all, for all or at least some of the events short, uh, in, in the next year or so. Uh, there are definitely rumblings of bringing the quarter mile back, but it won't be at all of the events for sure. All of the tracks aren't um, long enough for it. But um, you asked if it's if the sport is as popular, and it's actually growing a lot right now in the United States. And some of that is because the NHRA is going back and they're doing things like bringing back a quarter mile where they can safely do so. Um, so I would look for that next year, yes. Now, the, the big names that the international audience will know have not necessarily been at the sharp end of the field. Everybody knows John Force and he's still racing. Uh, his uh, his family is a dynasty of, of drag racing. Um, we'll, we'll, we might as well start with funny cars then in that case, um, as that will be the one that most people listening will know. Funny car season. Who, who had the good season? Who had the bad season? So you mentioned John Force. John Force did have um, an actually a, a decent season there at the end he was in position where he could have won uh, another championship so that would have been number 17 for him but he finished up third in the points and um, Robert Height who drives for John Force Racing actually won the title and he did it just I mean it was his championship to lose from the very beginning yeah unusually he was in the season just passed he was one of the people who who had a consistent season and and managed to put together a run of results that put him right at the sharp end of of that top fuel funny car field right the way through the year yeah he won um he won just over by just over eight points um so there was it was really close that's not even a round of racing um but he still won the, the title. He won the first race of the season, and it was it was exciting. That's the class, I think, that, as I say, most people will understand. I'm big fan of Top Fuel, massive fan <laughs> of Top Fuel. And again, I'm so old, I remember when the, the engines were still in front of the drivers, terribly dangerous right. in, in those days. <laughs> that, that hasn't happened for a, a very long time. Um, what happened in Top Fuel this year, Jamie? So Steve Torrance won the championship in Top Fuel for the second year in a row, but... It did it in a very different way. He had to work for this one. So what happened in 2018 was the countdown started, the points reset, and he won the last six races. He won every race in the in the countdown. This year, he only won one race in the countdown and lost the point lead a couple of times um, throughout the year. So there was a lot more of a mix-up in top fuel than what we've seen the last couple of seasons. And you, you mentioned the countdown there. That's NHRA's version of the playoffs in, in NASCAR speak. Uh, and, and that's, how many years have we had that now? Ooh, that's a good question. I think this was the seventh. Yeah, okay. So that's, yeah. that's been in position for, for quite a while. It, it, it's relatively unusual for somebody just to get one win in, in the countdown and still win the championship. It, it's, I mean, it happens, right? Because it happened this year. Um, but I think what it says about the class is that anybody could have won it. Yeah. And that's the whole point of the countdown is you want to make those last six races the exciting part of the season. You want to get to the, the end of it and still have something to fight for. And that's what happened with it this year. Now, Steve Torrance also won the regular season championship. So um, if you would have added up all of the points that he won for the whole season, he would have been the champion no matter what, whether the points had reset or not because he was so dominating early on. Yeah. Um, but he still had to he had to earn it this year. Uh, as far as he won, um, I think, nine 
races. Total races. Uh, yeah, yeah, this which was the most of, of anybody. Uh, the good news is, if, if you're a fan of stats, and I know this would make Shea very happy, is that the eventual champion won the most races in three of the four car- uh, categories, major categories. <laughs> and it was, the man who lost out was Bo Butner, won the most races in his category, four in pro stocks, but didn't win the title. Did not win the title. No, he he won his races early on in the season, and this is where the countdown comes into play. Erica Enders ended up as the champion. She won most races at the end of the season. Um, she did not earn the most points in the countdown. Her teammate Jed Coughlin did, um, but she had a strong enough performance that she was able to to make a championship out of it and get her third title. And we, we should say as well, uh, drag racing has a very, very rich history of female drivers being successful. Uh, Erica Enders, the, the the latest in a long line of female champions down through the years, mm-hmm. uh, at competing on absolutely the same playing field. No, uh, no advantage there, except I'm told that apparently uh, females have... Have got better reflexes than men, and that's better. why they make. That's why. That's why they make good drag races. Well, there is nobody in pro stock that can keep up with Erica at the tree, so I think that there's definitely something to that. I, I, I also watched with interest about a season ago, maybe a little bit uh, longer than that. Now, um, they changed from what I would call filament bulbs in the Christmas tree uh, to mm-hmm. LED bulbs because a lot of people said oh I'm, I actually start to watch for when the filament uh, filament starts to glow and with an LED it's just on or off that's extraordinary that races are being won and certainly the whole shot is being won by such small margins and that they're able to see it I mean you you and I would you know you look at a light bulb and especially when you're strapped into a race car, right? You look at a light a bulb shit and the around. last thing that you're realizing is what filament it is that it's about to illuminate. Um, so that's, it's incredible what they're able to do with, with the tree. It's incredible. Um, we've talked about all the four-wheeled categories. What about the bikes this year? Always one of my favorites as well. Um, the, those guys and ladies are absolutely bonkers, but they put on a show, don't they? They do. I love watching them because... It, you know, something that kind of gets lost in it is it's the only category um, where there's no seat belts or anything. Ooh, um, and point. so it's they're using their body to to control everything that's happening. They they're used from their head to their toes um, to control which way the, the bike's moving and they're not strapped to it. Uh, and um, th- those machines are extraordinary. Um, we think of motorbikes being quick anyway, but oh, I mean. They are all pro- effectively. They're all prototypes, um, even in the pro <laughs> stocks. That they don't really look much like the the machines that they're based on. Um, right. Just phenomenal pieces, uh, bits and pieces. Um, let's talk about uh, who can we talk about now? Well, An- Andrew Hines was the pro stock motorcycle yes. champion. Yes. We did not mention him. Um, he is a multi-time champion, and he also. I mean, he it was his championship to to lose. Um, I mean, he had the most race wins and. Um, with eight wins in, in the 2019 season, which is pretty extraordinary um, when you think about how many races they actually do. Um, 
so he had a great season and they debuted a new Harley Davidson. So it was good for the team and for everybody at Harley. When you have a name like Heinz, it has to be Harley Davidson because Vance and Heinz right. have, been <laughs> part and of, Heinz. <laughs> have been part of Harley uh, down th- They had a little wee dabble a few years ago with other manufacturers, but ev- effectively coming back to the V twins um, for, uh, and they do all kinds of aftermarket parts for uh, right. America's motorcycle as well. Andrew um, had a cracking season this year. He did. He did. You know, one thing that, that Vance and Hines did this season that I really liked um, was they added Angel Sampay to their rider roster. So it, for years, it's been Eddie Krawick um, with Andrew Hines, and this year they added Angel. So um, they put another champion on one of their bikes, and it took a little while for for her and the team and the bike to get up to speed all together. Um, but once they did about half a year and she was comfortable and they were comfortable with her on the bike, um, it, they started going some rounds. Uh, as far as the sport generally, we, we talked about the, the potential for them going back to, to quarter miles in, in some of the venues. The other big change over the last few years is, has been doing the four wide, uh, the four mm. wide racing. Um, originally, uh, designed so that you could continue racing if there was an issue on uh, a pair of the strips, somebody lunged an engine or whatever, but then somebody had the bright idea of actually running all four lanes at the same time. I can't even begin, Jamie, <laughs> to imagine what that is like as a spectacle, particularly in the, in the evening or the night races that they run four wides. It is. So they do it now. Um, they do the Charlotte four wide, and, and they also do a four wide race in at Las Vegas in the spring. Um, and you have to imagine being, you've been at the line to watch two mm. top or two funny cars launch at the same time. That's over 20,000 horsepower combined. So then you add two more to it and you're, you're talking 40,000 horsepower <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> when I say that you have to be there to see it and to feel it, you, everything in your body shakes, the earth shakes underneath you when all four cars launch at the same time i i tried to explain it many years ago when i was at the gator nationals and uh, we did uh, a special show from there on on, uh, an an earlier iteration of midweek motorsport Uh, first of all i had to be careful where i stood i was recording on mini disc in those days um which (laughs) you know that that so that dated straight away so we're not talking about a cassette um or some kind of tape but even the energy from the sound alone affected the mini discs operation and it kept turning itself <laughs> off. It was e- extraordinary. And I tried to describe it to somebody. I said, it was like someone putting their hands inside my body cavity, shaking up my interior organs and then letting me walk away. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I, I couldn't walk up a, a set of stairs. I didn't know whether my feet were on the ground. I, I didn't know what was left or right. It was it was. <laughs> Unbelievable, and I can't. That was only two cars, and it probably wasn't. I mean, if you're talking back in those days, it probably wasn't as powerful uh, as what it is now. Uh, what What was your favorite event of the year, Jimmy? Uh, I always love Indy. I love the U.S. Nationals. Uh, it's like the Super Bowl of drag racing, uh, right? It's Labor Day weekend in Indianapolis, so there's a lot of motorsports heritage that's in the area. Um, and it's just a neat event. All the sportsman racers come out. The grassroots of NHRA is really what what fuels it. All of the sportsman racers bring the best of the best. And it's just car after car after car after car for days going down the racetrack. 
Um, and it's if, if you like cars and you like watching racing, uh, that's my favorite event. And plenty of door slammers in that as well with with the, the, oh, the with yeah. the proper metal bodies and stuff like that, which is as you say is absolutely the the roots of it. Are you going to be involved again? With I mean, great for the UK because we see pretty much all of it at the the highlight shows uh, come yep. onto the the BT Sport and the ESPN channel over here. Are you involved again next year? Uh, I will be involved next year. I don't know in what capacity or which of events or how many events or <laughs> any of that that's what the off season's for right no, that's uh, true enough. but i will be i will be involved there here in the united states um it's back on on fox um for another year so it's um i'll definitely be a part of it brilliant to have you on the show jamie and you're going to come and join us at the rolex 24 at daytona as well i will be at daytona with you guys yes i'm really looking forward to that right dust off your uh Dust off your, your fire suit and we'll have you in the pit yeah. lane if you don't mind. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> Best to Brian and the kids. Yeah. Have a great holiday period. Thanks for All joining right. us, Jamie. Thank Howe. you. You and Eve as well. Final nominees for uh, Man of the Year show. Uh, we still have two categories left. They are for Young Driver and for the Man of the Year as well. Yep. So uh, we'll... Uh, just quickly go through those and we'll start once again with Shay. Shay, who is your young driver? Roman DeAngelis is the young driver of the year for me. He won both the GT3 Cup Canada and the USA, stood on the podium at the 24 Hours of Daytona in his debut in that race, and he was only off the podium once between 28 races across Canada and the US. A phenomenal year for that young man. Uh, Johnny Palmer next, please. Young driver of the year is uh, a chap who I think is going to go on to stardom if he's not there already driving prototypes. I know he's been on the cusp of one or two deals away from full-on endurance racing already this over the winter period as well. Um, he's going to step up a grade going into the next season, but as far as the WEC is concerned, should stay as a silver. So it should be a very much a, a secret weapon for one or two teams. Young driver of the year. And uh, he was a champion last year as well. So we should have seen him coming really. Jop van Outert of the Netherlands. And Nick Damon. And finally, your man or woman. Of the no, not, not yet. Not yet. Uh, Nick Damon. Nick Damon, are you there, Nick Damon? A great crop of young drivers this year, but my nomination goes to Lando Norris, who arrived uh, in Formula 1 after a difficult Formula 2 season, has bounced back and proved himself to be absolutely of Formula 1 quality, producing great results, great qualifying, matching up well to Carlos Sainz, perhaps not quite as lucky, but certainly as a 19-year-old who just turned 20 only a couple of months ago, a fantastic young driver and definitely, for his age and experience, the best of that young crop in F1 at the moment. John? Disagree. There's a better young driver in Formula One at the moment. Charles Leclerc. It is I, Leclerc. <laughs> he was under 21 at the start of the, at the uh, in January. Yes. I don't think I need to even explain myself for that one. Uh, okay, move on to Man of the Year. Let's start with Nick this time. Well, my nomination for Man of the Year is obvious. Of course, it's a multiple world champion. It is, of course, Lew- no, it's not. It's Johnny Ray. 
the uh, multiple uh, world champion uh, consecutively in world superbikes, who has surely pulled off the greatest comeback ever, being 68 points behind and not winning any of the first 11 races, which are all won by his rival Alvaro Bautista, to not only just scrape it at the end, but I think to win by over 80 points. An absolutely phenomenal performance by Ray, who single-handedly wrestled that bike to the front. He's always been commensurately better than his teammates getting that Kawasaki around. And uh, this will make up for him not being nominated for Sports Personality Year. Definitely Man of the Year within any racing category is Johnny Ray. Shay Adam, who's your Man of the Year? My Person of the Year is a young man who has been en fuego for a couple years now, but he really came into his own in 2019 He was champion of the series in which he ran. He won the biggest race of that series and one of the biggest races of the world. 18 wins total, 16 pole positions out of 32 races. I'm talking about Scott McLaughlin, Scotty Mack, who had a little bit of controversy surrounding him this year. He wasn't always the favored person, and he did develop a bit of a following against him, but he still showed his class And even though he didn't start two races this year, he still came away with the championship in style and with a few rounds to spare. Good. John? Uh, Nick gave us five world championships. I'm going to give you eight. And uh, particularly this year, uh, his eighth world championship uh, with machinery that nobody else could handle and nobody else could get the results out of. And that would have to be Mark Marquez. Extraordinary run by Marquez. Uh, He is a force of nature. His will is extraordinary. Harder championship for him to win this year in some respects. And he's feeling the pressure from the young young riders, including Fabio Fabio Quattararo. Uh, to the point where he's playing mind games and he actually threw himself off the bike at one stage doing that. But you cannot deny that no one else could get the performances out of the machinery that Marcus had. You can't say that he was the best. He had the best bike. You have to say he was the best at what he did. Therefore, it's Mark Marquez, our man, stroke person of the year. And Johnny Palmer, finally. My man or woman of the year is a guy who has excelled in... (laughs) The WEC over the period of 2018 into 19, Le Mans winner uh, with two other guys who obviously are great talents as well. But I think particularly in 2019, after a, a, just an unbelievable Nürburgring 24-hour performance, and then he backed that up with a brilliant win at the Spa 24 hours as well. There's just no stopping uh, the rapid Frenchman Kevin Estra right now, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can produce in 2020. But for me, um, I was about to say in the GT world, but I think across all motorsport disciplines for me, there's no one quite as good and quite as consistent as Kevin Estra right now. Uh, and that's all the nominations done. What happens next, Tim? Uh, next, we invite the listener on Twitter to suggest people for the uh, listener award. So please send your tweets to at RS underscore studio. Now, this is a bit like a, an extension of the Forge Line Wales Spirit of the Race Award. This is a bit like the Spirit of the Year Award, isn't it, really? Yeah. Uh, who, uh, in your opinion, dear listener, uh, do you think 
uh, has adequately represented the sport uh, in a positive way. Could be a driver, could be another individual, could even be a group of individuals. That is the uh, spirit of the year award, spirit of the sport award, if you will, any part of motorsport, and that is down to you via Twitter. And what we'll then do is collate the top names on Twitter and put that to a vote on www.radio-show.co.uk. And that will have to go to at RSL underscore studio or at Spectatainment, Tim, or does it not matter? It doesn't really matter. But Uh, using the hashtag S-O-T-Y, show of the year, please. And you need to do it by uh, midnight Tuesday. Right, so if you're listening to the repeat or you've downloaded this, have a think and get it in quickly. So, at Spectatainment, use the hashtag S-O-T-Y, your nomination for the spirit of the year, person, team, individual, whatever. Get in as quickly as possible and then we'll pull out the top three or four and ask you to do a vote on those. As far as our noms are concerned, they will go up on the webpage as well in due course, Tim. Is that yes, for- voting will open for all six categories plus the list reward uh, after next week's show. And that's all we've got time for tomorrow night at 8. It's the European Le Mans Series Season Review with Johnny Palmer joining you, John. Yeah, a couple of tweets just to finish off. A lot of people talking about Peugeot. Um, why can't they come in uh, with... And, and this is the best answer to all of this. I still think it would be unprecedented to give anybody an invitation that hasn't raced the car, even if they entered in 20. At uh, 122, and then missed the first three rounds and got fined. Any, I don't think it's ever happened, uh, Stuart Hart, that anybody has got an invitation for Le Mans who have deliberately missed three rounds of the first part of the season. Um, but this, the this, the solution is right turn lover. Assuming that Rebellion's current car is still being grandfathered in, what's to stop Rebellion? Uh, what's to stop Rebellion uh, entering in 21-22 and changing the car partway through the season? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Which suggests to me that the non-hybrids will continue to be eligible till the start of the 21-22 season. Uh, Just to prove that we were live tonight, yep. uh, it finished nil-nil, uh, but Exeter have uh, gone through on kicks from a penalty spot. OK. My goodness. That was a big score uh, on Merseyside. Um, and the book that we were talking about earlier on uh, was Corvette Racing the First 20 Years from Nigel Scott Dobby. We will have an opportunity to you for you to win one of those. Thanks to all of our guests tonight. Lovely to have Cyril Teshvalen on the uh, on the show this evening and Jamie Howe uh, and also all of our normal contributors with their nominations for show of the uh, Johnny Palmer and me tomorrow night from 8 o'clock for the ELMS season review. Join us then or next week here on Midweek Motorsport. No time to explain. The Llama is looking for a watch sponsor. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.